That is the last hour. <laughs> First John 2, 18. <laughs> Let's see where we go with this. Uh, I think we'll at least get through 34 and 35, which really summarize the message of Isaiah to this point. 34 shows us the desert that results when we trust in the nations or in anything that is not God. And 35 shows the paradise that results when we trust in God. That summarizes the message of the book. So, chapter 34, verses 1 through 8. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their horses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk a spill in the heavens. Behold, he sends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people that have devoted to destruction. The Lord is the sword, is insated with blood, it is scorched with fat, with the blood of plants and goats, with the fat of the kidneys and rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Boza, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its full, and fill with blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, and he a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Alright, he says, listen up. O nations, O peoples, the earth and all that it contains, the world and all that springs from it, because what? Fourteen nations. The Lord's indignation, the God's wrath against all the nations. He's destroyed them, he's given them over to slaughter, and how bad is it? really bad (laughs) so bad that their dead bodies stink and the there are landslides caused by rivers of blood washing away the soil it's just it's just horrible the host of heaven where away the skies rolled up like a scroll reminds me of chapter 40 verse 22 where God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in now he rolls them back up their world ends God is bringing devastating destruction and, 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 and just a total wiping out of the nations because of his indignation against them don't trust in the nations that's a dead end that's going down and one of the most enemy nations <laughs> going to be a most enemy nation <laughs> the, 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 the one that was the most against Israel of all was Edom the Edomites came from who? so they were a cousin nation but how did they treat Israel? bad Remember when they tried to go through Edom on their way into the promised land? Edom wouldn't let them. And you remember uh, 
what do you remember the special book in the Bible that the whole book is about the, the judgment on Edom? Obadiah. And uh, a lot of other passages that speak against Edom. So God is using Edom kind of as a representative of the enemies of his people. Here's what God's going to do to Edom. What's he going to do? With the sword. And uh, this sword is a bloody sword. Because God is going to offer a sacrifice. He's got a great sacrifice. He's got the blood of lambs and goats. The fat of rams' kidneys. He's got wild oxen and young bulls. And, and this sacrifice is the sacrifice of the Edomites. <laughs> All sin ends in sacrifice. Either of the sinner or of somebody in this place. In this case, it is the world as sinners. The Edomites as the prototypical enemies and sinners that are the sacrifice. God is going to destroy them. He's going to wipe them out. Their land will be soaked with blood. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. For God's people, God is going to wipe out their enemies. Don't trust the nations. Trust God and he'll deal with the nations. Be on God's side, don't be one of his enemies. You, the, the message of Isaiah to this point is in part, here's what happens to the enemies of God's people by God's decree, not by the political machinations of the Israelites. Comments and questions? Shake. a question about verse 5. Um, it's about the sword being bathed in blood. My verse is bathed. Verse 5. My sword should be bathed in heaven. What does that mean? I don't understand. <coughs> I don't know if I can answer that. My translation said my sword is satiated in heaven. And I think the idea is he's bringing his sword down from heaven. Maybe that he's got a full quota of blood to, to kill or something like that. I don't know. He goes along with what said later in these verses. It's filled with blood. It's filled with blood in verse 6. So, I, I don't know. I, I would definitely imagine something in heaven, you know. Maybe he's got a quota of blood to... Uh, Kill or something like that. J.D.? I wonder if he's also judging the heavenly hosts again. He said for the hosts of heaven rocks away, all their hosts shall fall. Have we seen that where did we see that before where he will cast down the twenty four twenty one? Yeah. Good idea. I like that. So perhaps his sword sword has already been doing battle in heaven filled with blood of the celestial enemies and now it comes down to the earth to do the same thing. Two lesser enemies who will with, theoretically would have less power of resistance even. So that would, that, that's a good idea. I like that, that concept. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Verse 24, 24, 24, 24. yeah. Other thoughts and comments through 8. Gary, just comment about the, the fig tree and the loss of the leaves, and I never thought about that, but that, you know, you wonder if the barren fig tree is Jesus' condemnation, uh, if there was any relevance to thinking of this passage. Mm -hmm. Entering back into that 
it certainly would fit with the idea here of what was about to happen with the, the old way of life and as well as Jerusalem itself. Sure, God, it's a figure of God's judgment. So that, that would fit. Other thoughts? John? I don't think we can fully understand you know, God's fury and his anger um, but I think Isaiah gets a pretty good glimpse of what it would be like to be God at, you know, or, or have these people um, I'm sure they treat him a lot of the way they, they treat God and I mean God not only created you know, and pre- uh, prepared the vineyard he also created you know, other nations and other peoples that have rejected him too so, I mean, he's created a whole bunch of people that reject him. I mean, and, I mean, I'm sure God's not, you know, crying about it, but, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't make him happy at all. You know, I'm sure he's angry about that, that he's created a bunch of people that, you know, the majority, the vast majority, just are running the other direction. You know? Mm-hmm. Other comments? Is Edom here similar to Moab as a symbol of the generic enemies of the Lord? Yes, Moab perhaps more a symbol of pride, Edom more a symbol of animosity against God's people, but yes. And where was that? Moab? Yeah, we saw it recently as a... 25, 10, 11, most recently. Where they were uh, swimming through the manure pile. You won't forget that image, will you? So one of Isaiah's classics. It needs to be on the top ten images of Isaiah. Up there with the outstretched hair. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, that wasn't an image of Isaiah. That, that was Amos. You can't talk this much and not say something uh, stupid, can you? <laughs> let, let that be a lesson for talking too much. We're always crazy. John and I will, uh, you know, share our commiseration. Be John. judgment against them. I agree. Other thoughts? I guess I mentioned note in verse 7 um, talks about all the animals that will um, 
be struck down as well. Well, we in the previous chapter we talked about how you know the animals will be spared. You know, I forget. Mm-hmm. Yes. They have room to live, but this is, I guess, is, um, utter destruction. You know, more than there was in the past, just wiping out everything. I don't know if that's significant, but I kind of noticed it. Good thing to notice. Other thoughts? Matt. We, well, we were saying about how you know the, the heaven being rolled back as a scroll is kind of a symbol of heaven, you know, like the, the end of the world, which is taking at least this this verse out of context. Is is anybody there really prophesying about the end of the world, or is it all just kind of prophesying about? This, this great judgment of the nations and the coming of the Messiah. I think what you just said the I, of the Messiah. and the judgment of the nations, I don't think it's about the end of the world. I don't really think the Old Testament looks in any detail at all to that. Not that you couldn't see sort of an antitypical you know, reference to that, but but I think in specific. It doesn't exclude it, but it doesn't really look any farther than the beginning of the church. Beginning of the church. I, I would agree with that. Other things you guys want to say? 9 to 17. The strange will return in the pitch as Luther loses into Bremsel. Their plan will become burning pitch, and will not be quenched neither day. The smoke will go up forever. For generation to generation it will be desolate. The will capture it forever and ever. The pelican and hedgehog will possess it, and the owl and raven will dwell in it. And he will stretch over it the line of desolation, and the plumb line of emptiness. The snow will There is no one there whom they may proclaim the king, and all its princes will be nothing. Storms will come up into its fortified towers, metals and thistles in its fortified cities, and it will also be a house of, of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat will also will cry to its kind. <coughs> yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there. It will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, everyone with its kind. Seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing, none will, will lack its mate. For his mouth is commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast a lot for them, and his hand has divided it to them by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they will dwell in. So, look at what the outcome of this judgment is. It turns into a continual burning, verse 9. Smoke going up forever, verse 10. And a desolate wilderness. Which, ironically, or perhaps by design, is what you'd say about that region of Edom today. It's one of the most desolate tracts of land on the face of the planet, as I understand it. There to the right-hand side, lower right-hand side of the Dead Sea. And you see this, this description 11 to 15 is an interesting description. What does this place look like? 
desolate. Babylon. Looks a lot like what we saw in Babylon in chapter 13. You're right. What lives there? It's home. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so forth. It's just deserted, it's desolate, and a lot of scrubby desert creatures, a lot of kind of, you know, not very appealing creatures. Most of these are not uh, typical pets. I like verse 11. It's kind of ironic. But Pelican Hedgehog will possess it, Owl and Raven will dwell in it. He will stretch over it the line of desolation, the plumb line of emptiness. Now you think of a line, a plumb line, what do you use it for? Construction. Use it to build things. What's he using it for here? Destroy. He's using it to produce chaos. Uh, that's really intriguing. For one thing, that's what sin ends up as. Sin brings things to, a, to a, a, an end that is shapeless, purposeless, meaningless. And and you see here almost the reversal of creation. In creation, God took what was formless and void and organized and filled it. Now he takes what was organized and filled and devastates and empties it. That's what sin does. And he takes these careful measuring tools to produce total disorder. It's, it's almost like it's almost like saying, I'm going to have a deliberate, precisely executed devastation. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really ironic that he says those things. But this is maybe more than a description of just the land itself. Here's the result of a life abandoned to sin. It's what it looks like. The landscape of people who give themselves over to wickedness. It's desolation. It's desert. Filled with a bunch of vile creatures. Comments and questions through 15. Look. Uh, on verse 11, when it says, the token hedgehog will possess it, I have a side note that says, uh, for pelican, it says, or owl. But owls and pelicans are pretty, pretty different birds, so is there, does it really matter which it says? It? What does it matter to you? I'm just curious. <laughs> I mean... You know, you stop and think about it, it's going to make a whole lot of difference to us exactly what animals they are. The reason for the variety of translations is that how do we go about defining ancient Hebrew words? Or ancient words in any language. How do we know what they mean? <coughs> you know? Yes. We look at places where they're used. Just like you learn what words mean in your own language when it's all said and done. I mean, how do the dictionary writers decide what a word means? Well, how is it used? You know? Well, we come to kind of an intuitive idea about that. But, I mean, that's what you have to do. Well, so in an ancient language like Hebrew, what words are the hardest to define precisely? 
That's one point. It's not used hardly at all. You have a real hard time knowing what it means. You know, if you only find it one or two places, maybe there's several definitions that could fit in those contexts. And secondly, you have a hard time with what other classes of words? Well, but those are, well, yeah, certain kinds of nouns. Give us a hint. Birds, owls, pelicans. Do you see why? You know, do you see why? Because you could have lots of contexts like this. Does verse 11 really help you know what the what those animals are? I mean, animal names are hard to know even if you see them in several contexts. Unless you have like a zoological book you were reading that started describing all the details of the animal, a lot of times they're used in context where several animals would fit. Same thing with plant names, flower names. You know, because they're often used in contexts where well, other flowers would fit the context also. Gem names, precious stone names, those are hard ones. Because, because of the context you usually read those in don't tell you very well exactly what they are. So it's really common in both Old and New Testament, even you know, defining uh, Greek words, uh, those kinds of words are often subject to translations. You're thinking, well, those are two different animals. I wonder which one it is. Well, we probably don't know very well which one it is. And kind of translators kind of taking a stab from the few contexts where they've got those words, trying to guess, well, maybe it's this kind of an animal. I'm not saying that's true of every animal. Obviously, there are some that are very commonly used. Now, if you, you know, get, you know, hams from it, or it's probably a pig, you know, whatever, that kind of an idea. But but a lot of animals are just harder for us to know. Rarer animals and animals that are kind of more nondescript. So that's the reason for that. Uh, but it probably doesn't make any difference to us. Other thoughts and comments to verse 15? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's talking about steps in, like in verse 9, it's strange that we turned into this. Is this how I eat or the whole part of this? I think it's talking about Edom as a representative of the wicked world. Okay, so in other words, all these, almost like, these, as we say, vile creatures are going to be living in this, in this place where God is taking vengeance on these, on these vile people. Yes. So really, too late, it's already infested with vile things. But that's not everyone in it, because it's already infested with those that are disobeying God. Yeah. <coughs> Appropriate punishment. And he says in 16, seek from the book of the Lord and read. There's a lot of emphasis on things being written down or written down in the book. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what he means when he says, not one of these will be missing, none will lack its mate, for his mouth is commanded and his spirit has gathered them. The idea seems to be, at least in general, you can't escape what God says. When his mouth commands it, that's what will happen. And, uh, you know, when he's cast the lot, when he's given the place for them to possess, that's what will happen. I think the general idea is, when God, what God writes in a book, that's, you can count on it. That's the way that's going to be. And so what God, that the, the uh, inheritance God has assigned the wicked is unalterable. 
but exactly what he means in the first part of verse 16, I'm not sure. Comments and questions on chapter 34. Alright, chapter 35. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice with blossom, like the crocus will blossom profusely, and rejoice with rejoicing, and shout with joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. But he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. And the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes, and a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it. But it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go upon it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return, and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You can see many specific contrasts between 34 and 35. Those who trust in themselves, a desert, 34. Those who trust in God, a garden, 35. In fact, the wilderness and the desert blossom with new life, with beauty. And so it really stresses the contrast with chapter 34 when he starts out with the wilderness and makes it blossom uh, profusely, rejoice. Um, This is God's blessing upon his people. He can take any barren life and make it fruitful and lush and beautiful and productive. He speaks of the glory of Lebanon given to it. Lebanon was known for And he talks about Carmel. Carmel was known for oaks and it speaks of Sharon Sharon was known for flowers and uh, all of these are part of God's blessing on the land they'll see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God encourage the exhausted strengthen the feeble those who maybe don't have a whole lot of strength ought to be receiving new energy from this great blessing God will give this is exhilarating this gives you new new force new strength new new energy say to those with anxious heart take courage fear not God will come and save you a reference primarily I think to uh, Matthew chapter 1 and uh, passages like that and look at the transformation in the people Going back to what we've seen, chapter 32, the reversal of chapter 6, the eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, the lame leap, the mute speak. Waters break forth in the wilderness. You know, God gives his abundant blessings to this desert land, to this desolate wilderness. Just a wonderful, 
wonderful paradise. God brings Eden back for those who are faithful to him. Comments and questions to verse 7. some personal thoughts about Isaiah as we've been reading through it and how you know like God will bring down the nations you know or bring down his people Israel and how we can relate to that and we're each our own personal Israel and we each have our own mess up and it brings us low and when we humble ourselves it brings healing yes so I've always thought that was kind of cool to apply it to ourselves of course yes I think so good point other thoughts See the highway there. This highway of holiness. The, the, the way to God's blessings. Think of uh, Matthew 7. The narrow way that leads to life everlasting. So here's the highway to the blessings of Christ. Now, um, who's not on that highway? The unclean and the fool. There are those who think, but they're wrong in my judgment, that the fool not wandering on it means the fool can't miss it. It'll be right there and he'll find it. I think it's just the opposite. I think the fool here is the moral fool, the reprobate. He won't be there. There's a highway only for the righteous, only for the pure, only for the faithful. And what else won't be on that highway? Which represent? Yes. The, the, the dangers, the threats, the predators. Um, so so there's, there's no danger there. The redeemed will walk there. The ransom of the Lord will return with joyful shouting, everlasting joy, gladness and joy, no sorrow, no sighing. So, here is the blessed way, the way of hope, the way of redemption, the way of victory for God's faithful, redeemed people. Just a you know, 34 and 35 are really an excellent summary of the two sides. The punishment for the wicked, the blessings for the righteous. Comments and questions? Kind of when I uh, read about it, you know, the line will be there, no reverence piece will come upon it. Um, I kind of, you know, it's not, well, at least in my interpretation, it doesn't really seem like it's saying that if you're walking on the on a, you know, a highway of holiness that you know the danger doesn't exist because it's almost like it's almost like there's fences along the, the way the way I imagine it and the lions and the beasts are right at the fence you know growling and threatening you know roaring lions they're not actually going to do anything if you stay on the path the holy way of holiness you can't you, the danger still exists but if, you're, if you keep on the path of the path of holiness then they're not going to harm you they can't touch you not, not that they're not a threat but if you, but as long as you keep your feet on the path, they're not actually gonna, they're not actually gonna touch you. I mean, that's sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if we stray off the path, we're in danger. Right. Yeah, yeah. Shane. Still, really, um, okay, so, I still really don't understand the version of the tool. I'm gonna, I don't understand um, in verse eight. I still don't understand that. Read your translation. Um. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not be arrested. 
Yeah, you see, that's uh, probably not the best translation. Look at it, look at an eight in the numeric standard. A highway will be there, a roadway. It will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. So I think he's saying the unclean and the fool. Remember, the fool is not a good guy. He's not just dumb. Look back at uh, 32.6. The fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness, to speak error against the Lord, etc. So by the definition of Isaiah, the fool's not stupid. He's wicked. The fool won't be there. Only the righteous people will be there. I think that's the point. No problem. Other comments? Yeah, David. Um, in verse 8, the New American Standard has the highway of holiness. Um, I have the way of holiness. And I think it's interesting that the early church uh, Christians were said to belong to, be belonging to the way. And so, I think it's kind of cool to I agree. And there's several passages in Acts that speak of the way, in that, in that way. <laughs> yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Yes. Sadie. Uh, well, you just said these kind of descriptions of the blessings, five and six, the, the, the blind will be able to see, the ears of death will stop. And, you know, we've been taking a lot of these blessings as very poetic and just generic and descriptions of the bounty. And then you have Jesus come and actually perform those very miracles as if to you know, screw their faces, I am the one who's bringing this, you know, the blind actually do receive sight, and things like that. Yes. Yes, Jesus fulfills literally something that would not have had to have been fulfilled literally to make the his fulfillment of it more obvious. <coughs> and to point to his spiritual healing as well. Eric. This thing is interesting, it's picturing holiness as a, as, some, as like a highway you walk on or a way you go. Uh, it's interesting to me that you describe it that way. It, it seemed to me like that is, holiness is a way of life. It is a way that we walk on, not necessarily just a destination we arrive at, but it's a way we live, that we live holy, you know, to, uh, <coughs> Yes. <laughs> Other comments and questions? So what we're going to do, uh, there is the very next little section would be really nice to uh, look at in connection with what we've just studied. So I'd like for us to do that and then uh, we'll probably sing a little bit and, and knock off. But um, 36 to 39 is a historical narrative. It's very different than the rest of this. It kind of gives the historical context of these events, parallel to some things in Kings and Chronicles, quite parallel to Kings. Um, And I want you to see the first three verses of chapter 36. Now, when we do this, uh, Lord willing, next year, uh, we'll do a little bit more with the uh, background of 36 to 39 and some things about the organization of those chapters that we really don't need right now. But uh, would somebody read chapter 36, verses 1 to 3? King of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rashashashim, 
with a large army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. And El El Ikem, the son of who was over the household of Shabana the scribe and Jonah the son of Asa the reporter came out to him. Alright. Sennacherib had conquered all the fortified cities of Judah. He sends his messenger the Rabshakeh with a large army to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah and he's going to try to intimidate the Jews in Jerusalem to surrender because it's hopeless to resist the Assyrians. But did you notice verse 2? Where did the Rabshakeh stand? Exactly. The conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Look right back to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 3. That's the place where Isaiah met Ahaz, the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field, and told Ahaz, don't trust Assyria, trust God in the fight against Israel and Syria. Ahaz didn't listen made the alliance with Assyria and now a generation later the Assyrian messenger is on that very same spot threatening to finish off Judah it is Ahaz's decision to appeal to Assyria bearing the harvest he appealed to Assyria the Assyrians were about to just wipe them out. You reap what you sow. The very nation Ahaz trusted in turns around to practically destroy Judah in the days of Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. I just think that's so amazing that the detail is given to help us see the connection. It's the very same spot. A spot not, you know, kind of unreasonably precisely defined for this book but because he wants to see he's standing in the footprints of Ahaz causing Judah to reap what they have sown you trust Assyria (laughs) you're going to get Assyria you trust God and you'll receive the Lord isn't that cool Comments and questions. You see a lot of Cam and Shebna again in chapter 22. Yes. Switched places. Yes. Good point. Alright, well this has been a really uh, great time as far as I'm concerned. I've really appreciated the opportunity to uh, study together. I don't really know if we've done quite as many hours of study as we did with Leviticus. I don't have much way of knowing that. You, you haven't got